It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday, August 28th, 2009. And yes, my Macintosh computer is running Snow Leopard. It's Christmas in August. It's just the... Oh, man. Yep. I'm, I have geek pimples. That's goose pimples for nerds. Oh, it's just... Ugh, it's so cool! And not only that, it freed up a truckload of space on my hard drive. This thing is fast, too. <laughs> Those of you on PC, I, I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I, I know it must be terrible for you to have to hear me revel, you know, reveling and enjoying myself in my Macintosh operating system. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Why? Because God's Word is true. You can you can trust it. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus Christ himself had the ultimate opinion about Scripture, that it was the very Word of God. And uh, he proved his credentials to speak about such manners by rising from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And uh, so, I mean, unless you can really beat those credentials, uh, <laughs> we don't really have much to talk about there. So if, if what you're saying, you know, in the name of God contradicts the Bible, uh, you're wrong, the Bible's right. Repeat after me. If I contradict the Bible, I'm wrong and the Bible's right. It's just, it's that simple. (laughs) All right, we've got a great program lined up for you today. I'm looking at the stories that we're going to cover. And um, I'm I'm beginning to think today is Twilight Zone Friday. Um, Oh, man. Uh, (laughs) The headlines read, Is Russian President uh, Medvedev a Buddhist goddess? (laughs) Kids, you not. I've got a story from the Telegraph in the UK. Uh, there's some Buddhists out there who are proclaiming that uh, Russian President uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, is uh, Medvedev is a Buddhist goddess. Now, this is just all kinds of confusing, and so we're going to be looking at that story just from mostly the entertainment value of it. And then uh, Al Mohler has a new op-ed piece. He asks the question: Are we a nation of Hindus? Yeah, I told you this is bizarre stuff today. And then we've we're gonna look at a piece from the Christian Post that attempts to answer that ever so thorny and uh, and <laughs> crazy theological question: Did Jesus die for little green men? That you know, aliens. Um, did Jesus die for them? And then, uh, and then I'm going to respond to un- yet, yet another blog post by uh, Terry Coy from Albuquerque. She's a she's a liberal gal who hangs out with the uh, outlaw preachers, and uh, she, I think she's got what's her blog? Is it Rebel Christian? Uh, hang on, I have to look. Um, I think it's Rebel Christian, and uh, at least that's what she calls herself. And I apologize if this uh, headline is. Uh, uh, is a little bit on the uh, strong side, but she just posted a piece called Why Do All the Fundamentalists Have Their Panties in a Wad? That wasn't my phrase, that's hers. 
And uh, I assure you, Terry, I don't wear panties. I I'm a boxer brief kind of guy, and uh, panties the, the no they don't mix with me. So uh, <laughs> I am not a fundamentalist who has my panties in a wad. So I'm going to be reading portions of her latest blog post and continue answering some of her questions. I consider this to be kind of a a non face to face dialogue that I'm having with Terry. And uh, if, if this is how she would like to conduct the, uh, the the dialogue, I'm all for it. I, th- I think that's a great way to do it. And then we're going to continue our uh, our study of the book of Romans. We're up to Romans chapter 4 today. And then I have received a ton of requests lately. I, I don't, maybe there's something in the water, uh, to for me to review a, a sermon by Craig Groeschel of LifeChurch.tv. Now, Craig Groeschel is one of the uh, the... The, the the members of the elite pantheon of uh, seeker driven uh, church planter guys and uh, and so we're going to be reviewing a um, sermon of his entitled the hesitant warrior from his uh, highly uh, copied warrior series uh, warrior sermon series so uh, that'll be our sermon review today so we got all kinds of stuff lined up today and uh, it is Friday, which means uh, I want to thank you all, uh, those of you who've uh, put in a hard wor- uh, week of work, uh, serving your neighbor in the vocation that God has put you in. i got to tell you, you know, even though I may not directly uh, be impacted by the work that you do, believe it or not, I am indirectly impacted by it. And so even though I may not buy your company's uh, products directly, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, your company is not valuable to me or that it doesn't serve me. And I want to thank you for the hard work that you've done uh, this week in uh, serving your neighbor and your vocation. And if no one else says it, you, you've got a big thank you for me. All right. Um, moving along, then, we're going to... <clears throat> the This is... I kid you not. Hang on a second here. i got to get the official headline here um from the telegraph in the uk the headline reads russian president medvedev is a buddhist goddess i i i you can't make this stuff up you just can't make this stuff up this is by emma hartley of the telegraph in the uk um and the subhead reads his divinity became apparent during a visit to a monastery in eastern siberia now, this is all kinds of confusing, okay, because Dmitry Medvedev uh, is a guy, he's a dude, and, uh, I mean, what what do you say to Buddhists who tell a dude that he's a goddess? I mean, does this make him a, a lesbian deity? I mean, is he a, is he a cross-incarnate, he, he's not cross-dressing, He I guess he's cross-incarnating, um, so we've got a goddess uh, with uh, male plumbing. That you know that just is messed up. Anyway, I I'm not making this up. This is a real headline from a real news story from a <laughs> the real Telegraph in the real United Kingdom. Um, so <laughs> let me read. Uh, President uh, Dmitry Medvedev of Russia was hailed as a goddess. I wonder if that means he could get his panties in. Never mind. Man, this is ridiculous. He was hailed as a goddess during an official visit to a Buddhist monastery in eastern Siberia. Talk about confusing. During the first trip in 16 years to the remote Ivolginsky Monastery in in Buryatia, a head of state, he was shown a statue of the White Tara, a seven-eyed female figure in the Buddhist pantheon, 
whose embodiment he is believed to be, it was reported. <sighs> These... <laughs> Again, what do you say to such a thing? Anyway, the spiritual leader of the monastery, Pan, uh, uh, Pandito Kamboto Lama Damba, yeah, whatever, uh, said that when asked about the president's spiritual significance, quote, it's very hard to understand this for non-Buddhists and even for some Buddhists too. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting hung up on the whole f fact that uh, Dimitri, the dude, is a Buddhist chick goddess. Speaking to the Interfax News Agency, he added, The leader of the country is a man who bears very serious responsibilities for others. The Buddhists must support him, identify him identifying him as a deity. Well, that would make him a false deity. Uh, while Tara is the mother of all uh, Buddhas and is thought to embody compassion, long life, healing, and serenity, she's also known as the wish-fulfilling wheel. Wish-fulfilling. Russia's Buddhists, of whom there are between 700,000 and a million, constituting less than 1% of the population, consider the country's leaders to be an emanation of the female Buddha. This belief dates back to the 18th century, when the Empress Elizabeth officially recognized the religion. The monastery at uh, uh, Baryatia is 30 kilometers from the region's capital, Ulan Ude, and is the biggest Buddhist center in Russia. In addition to being hailed as a goddess, President Medvedev promised financial support to the Buddhist community while he was there and announced that he will be introducing Buddhist chaplains to the Russian uh, Federation's army. Uh, Jeffrey Bamford of the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies explained that understanding the president's divine nature is problematic for non-Buddhists. It's just purely problematic. Um, none of us has a divine nature. I mean, what kind of god is that anyway? I mean... Do you think uh, uh, Medvedev was aware of his uh, goddessness? I mean, he had to be told this, you know. What kind of a deity has to be reminded or told that they're a deity? I mean, it's kind of a powerless deity, don't you think? I mean, and how do you know that since you're such a weak deity that you won't forget that you're a deity tomorrow? I mean, what's the point of being a deity or a goddess? <clears throat> um if you don't even really realize that that's the case unless somebody tells you i mean what are the benefits there apparently you know he's uh you know he's the uh, you know tara the wish and and she's the wish fulfilling wheel i mean so here uh, poor dimitri i mean he's gone his entire life up until this point not even realizing that he was the wish fulfilling goddess uh, wish fulfilling wheel goddess of buddhism and, uh, you know, he could have been exercising his wish-fulfilling powers all along, but see, he forgot that he was a goddess. Oh, man, just... <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, we continue. Um, it's, quote, it's a psychological thing that doesn't quite have a parallel in our language. It's philosophically based. Saying he is a goddess is a bad translation. Yeah, it's just bad, period. Uh, for Buddhists, he represents a bundle of qualities on the contemporary political scene, identifying him as White Tara, as a shorthand way of visualizing that uh, bundle of qualities in order to summon them up in oneself. Huh? Medvedev's thing is the rule of law. He's a lawyer. He produced a remarkable State of the Nation address in November last year, in which he... Uh, uh, 
anatomized the difficulty of making a modern state out of Russia. It is, uh, it was basically about being a law-based society, and this I think is the characteristic of what the Buryats and the uh, the Kalmyks identify in him with contemplating the White Tara. He did think that uh, his godhead would have been would have come as a surprise to President Medvedev. No, he. He would have been briefed, uh, said Mr. Bamford. The Russian embassy in London had no comment to make. So there you have it. Um, pre uh, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev is um, actually a, uh, not a dude. He's a Buddhist chick goddess. This, does any, did anyone else find this confusing and problematic? Well, he here's the deal. Uh, how, do we, how are we as Christians... Uh, you know, what's the biblical response to this? I mean, should we sit there and go, oh, that sounds so spiritual, and we need to respect, and uh, we need to, uh, you know, we need to embrace um, the, 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 the Buddha thing, and, 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 you know, because there's followers of Jesus in the way of Buddha, and no, <laughs> no, it's real simple. Um, uh, Dmitry Medvedev now falls under the official category in the Bible known as false god, a.k.a. idol. Yeah, th that's right. There is only one true god. Now, remember, truth corresponds to reality. Okay, So what is truth? That which correctly corresponds to reality. Is there really... In, you know, for real, in, in, the, you know, in the real world, in the real universe, a... Buddhist goddess by the name of White Tara? No. If you pray to her, does she hear you? <laughs> no. Um, can she help you? No. She doesn't exist. She's not there. In fact, I mean, you can phone her all you want. The phone's gonna ring and no one's gonna pick up. That, you see, the thing is, is that there is no real god named White Tara. And so, yeah, I understand that Buddhists are religious and spiritual people. Uh, but they're caught up in a false religion and spirituality. How do I know this? Well, here's the deal. Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the one true God of Israel, that monotheistic God that said that uh, there is no other gods beside me. Jesus happened to be that God in human flesh. And he proved it by raising himself three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Okay, so... Uh, there is only one true God, and Jesus be him. And uh, there are no goddesses. They, they just don't exist. And so what do we do in a situation like that? It, well, how, you know, how would they know that this that this white Tara thing? Well, they, they feel it. Well, feelings are no way of determining nothing. You, you know, How do I know that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be? Uh, the eyewitnesses said that they had fish with him after he was crucified. He had risen from the grave, proving who he was. Uh, dead people don't eat fish. And uh, and Paul himself says, if Jesus is, if, had, if he had not risen from the dead, we, we're false teachers about God. You know, he, you know, and worse than that, you're still in your sins. So, you know, I'd be the first person to walk away from Christianity if they found the bones of Jesus Christ, because that would prove it's a sham. But the reality is, is Christianity is the only religion on the planet that has such a truth claim. So, um, um, you don't need to uh, address Dmitry uh, Medvedev as uh, your goddessness. Uh, that would not be appropriate. All right. Uh, <laughs>
crazy story. All right, uh, Al Mohler has a new uh, has a new op-ed piece, and he asked the question: Are we a nation of Hindus? <laughs> this, today's theme here on Fighting for the Faith is one of bizarreness. I think uh, Al Mohler writes. He says those who argue that all religions are essentially the same reveal the fact that they know little about these very different belief systems. The worldview of Christianity is, for example, radically different from the belief structure of Buddhism. <laughs> Funny that you would mention that. <clears throat> Sorry. Some forms of which may actually claim to resist the very idea of beliefs. These differences in belief systems are apparent in Lisa Miller's recent article for Newsweek. As she explains, a million-plus Hindus live in the United States, a fraction of the billion who live on Earth. But recent poll data showed that conceptually, at least, we are slowly becoming more like Hindus and less like traditional Christians in the ways we think about God, ourselves, each other, and eternity. Isn't that just lovely? <clears throat> thank you the thank you to all the proponents of the Age of Aquarius from the 60s. <clears throat> Many Christians will flinch when reading this. Does this mean that Hindu temples are appearing across the American landscape? Well, not hardly. What Miller describes is the transformation of the belief system in ways that resemble Hinduism. Her argument deserves a fair hearing. She begins by quoting a Hindu writing the uh, Reg Veda, Truth is one, but the sages speak of it by many names. Yeah, the, by the way, that uh, there's a, a paraphrase of that particular phrase from the Reg Veda that goes something like this. Ah, there are many ways to climb Mount Fuji. The idea of one truth known by many names is not new. Indeed, it is central to polytheism and the syncretistic beliefs of several historic and current worldviews, including emergence Christianity. Hinduism is radically polytheistic and syncretistic. According to Hindu belief, the many gods and goddesses of their uh, veneration all represent one fundamental divine reality. The idea of a singular and exclusive truth is antithetical to classical Hinduism. So what is Miller's point? See, she suggests that contemporary Americans, including many who consider themselves Christians, are abandoning, abandoning the exclusive claims of Christianity for a form of theological pluralism or relativism. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Have, have any of you read uh, the subtitle to uh, Brian McLaren's book, uh, Generous Orthodoxy? Yeah. It <laughs> Anyway, we continue. Quote, a Hindu believes that there are many paths to God. Jesus is one way. The Quran is another. Yoga practice is a third. None is better than any other. All are equal, she asserts. Christianity, on the other hand, on the other hand, has, that's past tense, affirmed that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and that the only way of salvation is through faith in him. Yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. However, new emergence Christianity, well... Um, have you all, do you all read the sacred sandwich? I, I'm off on a little bit of a tangent here. Um, the sacred sandwich is a fine, fine, uh, Christian satire site. If you do not subscribe to their RSS feed, please do. The sacred, uh, sandwich, uh, you know, they come up with some of the funniest, uh, parody, uh, pieces that I have seen anywhere. And uh, they they recently came out with a uh, a parody um, spoof photograph 
or maybe I should say a parody spoof advertisement for a brand new emergent candy bar. Yeah, that, that's right. The, it, it's a it's an emergent candy bar, and uh, it, it it the the article. It's you know I'll tweet it out so that you can see it um, for yourself. But uh, the uh, the picture itself shows the Dalai Lama and Rob Bell, okay, together. And uh, they're facing each other, and uh, the uh, Dalai Lama is holding a statue of the Buddha, and uh, Rob Bell is holding his Bible open. And if you remember the old uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercials, now I'm going to really date myself. Man, I hate it when I do that. Um, Yes, I remember back in the 70s, the way they would would advertise Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, they show two kids, one was eating chocolate, and the other was uh, eating peanut butter, and somehow they would crash into each other. And one kid would say, hey, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. And the other one would say, no, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. And then they would say, two great tastes that taste great together, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Remember that? And here's the scary thing. There's a bunch of people who are listening to me describing this going, I have no idea what you're talking about, Chris. I know. I know. I, I'm old. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> Do the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercials still do that at all? Um, just wondering. Anyway, um, so play, playing off of that Reese's Peanut Butter Cup theme, the uh, you have the Dalai Lama saying, hey, you got Christianity in my Buddhism. And then you have Rob Bell saying, you got Buddhism in my Christianity. And then the advertisement says, two great faiths in one candy bar, Reese's Jesus Buddha Cups. And it's described as an emergent candy. Um, yeah, I think they get that. I think they got it right. So anyway, what uh, Lisa Miller at Newsweek is describing and what Al Mohler is commenting on is this new thing that's going on where people are embracing everything, including including you got McLaren celebrating Ramadan and not using it to pray and fast for the salvation of Muslims. No, 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 no. In his, in his book regarding... Uh, uh, spiritual disciplines he he pretty much makes it clear he thinks that uh that uh, islam is uh, one of the valid faiths of abraham and that god spoke to muhammad no he didn't he did not because god does not stutter god does not contradict himself anyway i'm off on a tangent we'll get back to <clears throat> anyway let me read the last sentence of um of uh Muller's piece here. A Hindu believes that there are many paths to God. Jesus is one way. The Quran is another. Yoga practice is a third. None is better than any other. All are equal, she asserts. Christianity, on the other hand, has affirmed that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and that the only way of salvation is through faith in him. Americans are no longer buying it, she insists. And by this, she means many American Christians. She cites a 2008 Pew Forum survey that indicated major slippage in terms of Christian conviction. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way of putting it. Uh, I think the other way would, would you could describe it is uh, apostasy and rebellion, but slippage, we'll work with that term for a little bit. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, okay. According to the Pew Forum survey, 65% of Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Let me read that again. According to the Pew Forum survey, 65, that is Almost two-thirds of Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. More telling, 
37% of those identified as white evangelicals shared this belief. So that's um, 37% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, shared this belief that there are many religions can lead to eternal life. Miller cites Stephen Prothero, a leading researcher on American religion who defined this divine Delhi cafeteria religion as very much in the spirit of Hinduism. As he added, you're not picking and choosing from different religions because they're all in the same. Uh, they're all the same. This is not exactly like traditional Hinduism, of course, but it works in much the same way. As he explains, it isn't about orthodoxy, it's about whatever works. If going to yoga works, great! And if uh, going to a Catholic Mass works, great! And if going to a Catholic Mass plus the yoga uh, and a Buddhist retreat works, well, that's great too! Forget the fact that God forbids um, idol worship. Uh, there is every reason to believe that uh, Lisa Miller and Stephen Prothero are correct in these arguments. Without a doubt, Americans have been growing more and more accepting of plural and relative understandings of truth. A tragically large number of those who identify as Christians have been drinking from the same wells of thought. I would say drinking the same Kool-Aid, but we'll go with wells of thought because that's what Mueller wrote. Uh, the, ex the exclusivity of the gospel is not merely a facet of the church's message. Indeed, a gospel that does not affirm that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone is not the gospel of Christ, but a false gospel. As Lisa Miller correctly recites, Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Correct. That's what he said. Now, is that true or false? Well, he rose from the dead. Buddha's still dead. <clears throat> Another aspect of the story is this. Many Americans have such a doctrineless understanding of Christianity, thank you, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, that they do not even know what the gospel is, thank you, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, not even remotely. A, great, a greater tragedy is that so many who consider themselves Christians seem to share in this confusion, thank you, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. Many observers who trace these trends see this doctrinal shift among Christians as a good development. <laughs> After all, if, uh, you're, if you hold to nothing more than a functional view of religion, this might seem to promise less conflict among religious believers. But if you believe that the truth is essential to Christian, the Christian faith, what did Jesus say? Those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in relative truth. No, hang on. Well, those who worship me in spirit will, uh, well, those who worship me will worship me in spirit and, um, and truth. You know, truth. Those who worship me will worship me in spirit and truth, not relative truth. Anyway, there is every reason to see these uh, trends as nothing less than catastrophic. That's correct, they are. Nothing less than our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake, and Muller's correct there. Are we becoming a nation of Hindus? Well, in this sense, it appears perhaps we are. The really urgent question is whether the church will regain its theological sanity and evangelistic courage to resist this trend. If not, being described as a nation of Hindus will be the least of our problems. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, great piece. And uh, Dr. Muller, as normal, as usual, is right on the mark. And that's really what's going on here. Folks, if you are attending a church where the, the great truths of the scriptures are not proclaimed as truth, but as something that you can kind of smorgasbord pick up, 
and you know blend it with a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of spirituality, a little bit of New Age thinking, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You need to get out of that church, and you need to find a church where the pastor has the guts, not guts church, though, but that guy's a heretic, but has the guts to actually proclaim the exclusive truths of Christianity. Because here's the deal. You mix Christianity and Hinduism, you don't have Christianity anymore. You have a false gospel that, according to Scripture, which is the Word of God, through the credentials of Christ we make this claim, uh, according to Scripture, will send people to hell, plain and simple. So, uh, if we're to be loving Christians, we have to stand by our guns and our exclusive claims. Because you can say that you love somebody, but if you don't love them with the truth, you, you're not really being loving, you're being deceitful. And that's the kind of stuff that sends folks to hell, causes them to trust in something other than the real gospel, the real good news of the real forgiveness of sins offered by the real Jesus, who is the real one true God. Just pointing it out. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. 
This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we are back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're not giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ and are off in sissy Oprah-fied Oprah land and telling you five easy tips to how to better cook a better meal and have better behaved children and how to make things spicier in the bedroom. Yeah, listening to this program is, I guarantee you, going to cause all kinds of problems for you because you're going to realize you're not getting real biblical teaching, you're not getting real biblical doctrine, and worse, you're not even getting the forgiveness of sins and the proclamation of what Christ has done for you on the cross. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's right, it's listener-supported. That means this is a little bit of a partnership between us. In fact, by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you not only make it possible for us to continue bringing this radio program to you, you make it possible for us to bring it to other people. And uh, you can partner with us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons right there on the homepage. And uh, that'll allow you to send your gift in uh, really securely and quite effortlessly. Um, however, if you'd like to do it the traditional way, we're all for traditionalism here. Um, well, not traditionalism, but we're, we don't look down on people who do things the traditional way. Uh, you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. Zero three eight. All right, now this segment here, um, we're going to answer that burning theological question. Did Jesus die for little green men? <laughs> I kid you not. I this uh, Today's program, I, the first three stories are just out there. They're just out there. Um, there, is no, uh, there is no other way to describe it. First, we have Russian President Medvedev. Uh, being declared to be a Buddhist goddess, and he's a dude. And then we got Moeller asking the question, are we a nation of Hindus? Uh, that was actually a pretty thought-provoking piece, but the question is kind of interesting. From the Christian Post, uh, Randall R Rouser, who's a Christian Post contributor, the headline reads, Did Jesus Die for Little Green Men? 
Is there anyone out there really asking this question? I just, before I read any of this little op-ed piece here, I just want to know, how many of you out there have wondered if Jesus died for E.T.? I mean, personally, I have not lost even as much of a second of sleep at night over this particular burning question. Why? Because I have yet to see any definitive proof that E.T. even exists. (laughs) That being the case, since E.T. is constantly absent, we have yet to run into E.T., I have uh, the, the question as to whether or not Jesus died for them is kind of a moot point. If E.T. shows up and we start having some theological discussions, that might lend itself to basically asking this question. But, I mean, aren't we kind of putting the cart before the horse here? If you're asking the question, did Jesus die for E.T., haven't you forgotten that we first have to uh, prove that E.T. even exists? Anyway, maybe it's just me. I'm being prejudiced against, you know, you know what I am. I'm an alien phobe. That's what I am. You see, because I'm discriminating against even the question being, I mean, I'm probably the guy who would absolutely refuse to allow aliens equal civil rights with humans. Just saying. All right. So the piece reads, is it possible that there is intelligent life out there among the stars? I... Listen, anything's possible, right? But not everything's probable. Although it's not, it is absolutely not possible uh, that the government will not tax us. I mean, that's, I mean, what, death and taxes are the two, anyway. So, if there is, what would be the theological implications of this fact? Uh, Randall, just asking the question here. Um, Are they paying you to write these articles? <laughs> I mean, what... Is, is this not compete, completely pure speculative speculative theology on your part here? Theological implications of intelligent life among the stars. First of all, let's establish whether or not there is such a thing. Yeah, I have yet to see any definitive proof that uh, proves that there is. Many Christians have assumed that there could not be intelligent extraterrestrials, and that if some were discovered, then this would somehow constitute a challenge to the Christian faith. <sighs> okay, listen. I'm 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 a, maybe I'm just being unfairly um impatient with Randall here. Um the, and the reason why is because right now the Christian faith faces some very serious deep threats and real challenges right now the, from the emergent church to uh completely out of control liberalism uh, from uh, from gospel reductionism to the prosperity heresy, Joel Osteen, the, the purpose-driven thing. I mean, those are some real threats, and they're not out there among the stars. The, and there's no spaceships needed for those. That's happening right here, right now, for real. And we're... Okay, so <clears throat> maybe I'm just being... Yeah. I will continue reading. <clears throat> So if some were discovered, that is, in Little Green Men, uh, then would this con- somehow constitute a challenge to the Christian faith? Apparently, that wasn't the view of Larry Norman, the father of Christian rock, who's dead now. Norman always sang about interesting, relevant, and unusual topics, and in his classic song, UFO, off of the album In Another Land, he even explored the largely uncharted territory of exotheology. 
this has a category. This they actually have a name for this. Exo meaning out of. Uh, okay, that is the discipline that concerned with theological reflection on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Are there really people out there who are reflecting theologically on the possibility of extraterrestrial life? Isn't that a complete waste of time? Don't we have poor people to feed and and gospel the gospel to proclaim? <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> <sighs> Honey, what'd you do today? Well, I spent the greater part of the afternoon reflecting on the possibility of extraterrestrial life and its implications on theology. Wow, that's deep and spiritual. In the song, Larry uh, uh, Norman likens the returning Christ to an unidentified flying object in keeping with the cosmic theme. Larry then sings that if life exists on other planets, then Jesus has already visited there as well and has died to save their souls. How do we know that the first of all, uh, I'm just getting frustrated with this piece. <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> all right, l listen, okay, l is it possible that um that uh if there is extraterrestrial life that they haven't fallen into sin and are therefore not in need of a savior? I mean, is that one of the possibilities theologically here? Uh, you know what? I'm being drugged into this whole reflecting on extraterrestrial theology thing. <sighs> it's a trap. Okay, so Larry Norman... Um, Alright, so fascinating, isn't it? No, it's not. I mean, back in the 1970s, at the same time that the Christian group Love Song was considered risque for singing about the little country church with a rockin' beat, here is Larry Norman, Norman making loaded theological claims about alien salvation. Larry Norman was undoubtedly ahead of his time. Yeah, he's so far ahead of it that you know, we still have yet to actually run into and have a conversation with the little green man. For recent years, uh, have seen a growing number of theologians turning to the questions of exotheology. Is there, uh, are there grants out there from the government being handed out for exotheology? The interesting thing is that these seemingly esoteric topics often have very practical implications. <laughs> okay, yeah, I will suspend my disbelief just long enough to hear this. Back it up, would you there, um, uh, Randall? Okay, so let's consider Larry's claim that Jesus would die for aliens. This strikes me as a mistake. Good, for the New Testament writers uh, understand that salvation offered by Jesus is truly cos in truly cosmic terms. As Paul put it, through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, or by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Surely all things would include any alien civilizations that exist in distant galaxies. And if so, then Jesus wouldn't have to go and die again, for his atoning work is a once-for-all act. But that only leads us back to another interesting question. Who would like to volunteer to be the first interstellar missionary? Again, I ask my question. Randall, are they paying you for these things that you're writing? Because, wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay, I just... Uh, maybe it's just yesterday's sermon review. You know, so are they human... We're human becomings. Does that mean that they're alien becomings? I just, you know... Anyway, all right. Switching gears once again here... <laughs> 
hopefully they won't come to a grinding halt. Rebel Christian, a.k.a. Uh, Terry Coy, who is a stay-at-home mom in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who also happens to, under her basically saying that she's studying for the ministry, has a follow-up piece to the piece that I responded to uh, from her earlier uh, this week. And uh, the name of this piece is, Why Do All the Fundamentalists Have Their Panties in a Wad? Now, she's further exploring you know, the questions that I answered on the, the earlier editions of Finding for the Faith earlier this week. And now Terry hangs out with the outlaw preachers there at uh, Twitter. And uh, so I'm going to, I want to read her piece, at least portions of it, and answer some of her questions because uh, you know, I think this is a great way to dialogue. She says, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I wonder if it was mine. Uh, the speaker on this podcast uh, uh, totally goes against what I believe. Uh huh. Okay. However, I was seeking to gain an insight into the thought processes of fundamentalists, so I listened with an open heart. Actually, I would hope that you would listen with an open mind. Anyway, when I when I heard uh, them making some very interesting statements, I'm paraphrasing what these guys were saying on the podcast, but some of the idea remains the same. Basically, they were stating that people ask them why is there the big focus on homosexuality actually that was your question uh, terry the fundamentalists have give have have given in on divorce and women's rights why not this the answer was that it's the straw that broke the camel's back maybe this wasn't my uh, podcast maybe this is somebody else uh, that this was the straw that broke the camel's back well actually um uh, terry i want to point something out um Homosexuality is not the straw that broke the camel's back. It really isn't, and I'm not sure uh, who these other people are that say it is. Basically, from my point of view and the way I read Scripture, and and again, if I'm wrong, show me from God's Word where I'm wrong here. Um, divorce is a sin, and it, uh, it's it, and I admit that there are different corridors of uh, Christianity that have pretty much given up on the whole idea that divorce is a sin. You know, they kind of just Ho hum, no big deal. Ha, you know who cares? Um, and there's and worse than that. I mean, they've completely chucked uh, the command of Christ to love and to, you know and and it, it love neighbor and that and that really plays out in feeding the poor and things like that. And so you know, there's different quarters of Christianity that seem to not make a big deal about the sins in the Bible. I think this is a profound mistake. Profound mistake. And uh, the position I'm advocating for, and I think it's the biblical position, but I'm open to uh, hearing uh, differing opinions on this, is that we need to recapture sin as a, in general as a category. And that means calling all sins what they are. Not because, not by the way, not because by calling them sins that that somehow makes me righteous. Or that somehow it's to make me psychologically feel better because at least I'm not like that that guy over there because I don't commit those sins. That's a real dangerous spot. Because here's the deal. Scripture teaches that all of us, every single one of us, is a sinner. I'm a sinner. Terry, you're a sinner. Even your your your, your children are sinners. My, my children are sinners. There, there ain't nobody out there that is, isn't a sinner. Why? Because... Scripture teaches that in Adam, we all fell. And now we are by nature children of the devil. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches, especially read verses 1 through 3. And so, uh, the, the, homosexuality is not, is not the straw that broke the camel's back. In fact, the way I see it, what happened with the ELCA last week is really a profound tragedy 
because here we have a religious church body that not that they've decided to tacitly just kind of shelve the conversation regarding whether or not homosexuality is a sin and uh, we're just not going to talk about it. That's one way to do this, by the way. But instead, they've basically taken a vote and said, no, we're going to have pastors that are practicing homosexuals. Okay, that is tantamount to, okay, let's 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 kind of put this in context. That is the equivalent of, let's say, the LCMS deciding that they're going to vote and allow practicing wife beaters to be uh, clergymen. And that basically we no longer think that beating your wife is a sin. And you're saying, well, wait a second, you're comparing homosexuality to wife beating. Actually, what I'm doing is I'm saying that both are sins according to God's word. Or how about this? How about if we decide as a church body, what we're going to do is we're going to take a vote and we're going to vote that um, embezzling from the government, uh, tax evasion is no longer a sin. Okay? Forget what Jesus said about paying to Caesar what is Caesar. Who cares? You just need to look at it in the Greek, and you'll understand. He didn't. He wasn't referring to the income tax system that uh, we have now. It's a completely different tax system. It's not synonymous. It's not the same. So therefore, we as the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod are now voting. At, we are going to allow for practicing uh, tax cheats to uh, to uh, have uh, positions of pastor in the church. You see, what the issue is, it's not, homosexuality isn't the issue. The issue is, it, in fact, it could be just any sin. Name the sin, okay? The issue is, it really isn't homosexuality. The issue is, is that what they've decided to do is vote against what God's word clearly teaches, that homosexuality is a sin, and basically allow for people, uh, for congregations to have the spiritual shepherd of that congregation be somebody who was unrepentantly practicing a sin under the false pretense that it isn't a sin. You see, you can't, you don't get to vote on what is and isn't a sin. Only God gets to decide that. And so that's really the issue. Now, I I completely agree that there are there are blind spots in fundamentalism and conservative churches and even in confessional churches when it comes to being consistent in calling out sin. I absolutely agree with you. However, being inconsistent by calling all sins sins equally is different than, and it's qualitatively different, worlds apart different, than taking a vote and saying, we've decided this is no longer a sin. You see the difference? Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Okay, so we continue. Now, I thought about this statement for some time. Is this what is driving the hatred? Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. What hatred? What hatred are you referring to? Is it hate to say homosexuality is a sin? That's what God's word says. Is it hate to say that adultery is a sin? That's what God's word said. It's what says. Is it hate to call stealing a sin? No, it's not. Okay? And we're not self-righteous in making that claim. We're just confessing and affirming what God's word teaches. And God's word levels us all and makes it clear that we are all sinners in need of a savior. We continue. It's like they're saying, 
We let black people have rights. We let women have equality. If you want to get divorced, go ahead. But we're putting our foot down when it comes to homosexuality. I, I don't think that's really what's going on here, Terry. It's like they see it as their last stand, a battle they won't lose. I really feel that this is what's driving them. I have known many fundamentalists over my lifetime. When I think back at the attitudes they've shown, this belief makes sense. They can't lose this battle. It's like a child who has lost every race and is determined to be the winner for once. It's a sad battle because they're fighting over human rights. Gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, these are people. Now, hold on a second. I, I want to make something clear to you, uh, Terry. Um, God didn't make some anyone gay. God makes people male or female. So this is not, when it comes to the church, when it comes to church doctrine, and it comes specifically to who is, appro who is appropriately qualified to be a pastor in a church, okay? This is not a matter of human rights. Now, I will be the first person to say I would have no problem, none whatsoever, having a repentant, homosexual man as my pastor. I would have no problem with that whatsoever because I, like him, am a sinner. And when I show up to church, I show up as a repentant, penitent sinner to receive from God his word and his sacraments, to hear of the great news of the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, the big issue really here is that by voting against what God's word says clearly that homosexuality is a sin, you're unlovingly and deceitfully cutting off. You're cutting homosexuals off from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which offers them forgiveness and mercy for their sins. Every bit as much as it offers me forgiveness and mercy for my sins. I mean, if somebody were to come to me and say, you know, Chris, you know, those sins that you struggle with, they're not really sins. And I go, oh, really? Because all this entire time I thought they were, you don't need to repent of them. Go ahead and indulge them all you want. They're, they're, they're okay with God and you don't need to ask him for forgiveness. Just go ahead and do them. Would that person really be loving me or would they be deceiving me? You see, the issue comes down to the authority of God's word. And that authority is wrapped up in none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, you look in the scriptures regarding his attitude, his opinion of God's word, the Bible. And you find that it is higher than any fundamentalist can ever possibly have. And even better, okay, Jesus Christ himself said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words wouldn't. So he even put his words high, you know, on the same par as the rest of the scripture that they had in those days. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will not pass away. So here's the deal. God has a say in this. God is the one who created us, and God is the one who gets to make the rules. When we look into the Bible and we know that this is God's word and we can we know that God has spoken definitively on this subject, we basically our job is to not arrogantly brush it aside and say, "Tut tut, I I'm too civilized to believe that silly stuff." <laughs> no, no, no. This is an issue of human rights and things like that. And you know, the, that's just backwards thinking. Of course, God is more civilized than that, and of course, he's concerned about uh, the human rights of of, of homosexuals 
homosexuals and gay people as well, and he would never be opposed to them being in the pulpit. Well, actually, that contradicts what God has already clearly said. It is a correct conclusion to say that God would not want an unrepentant homosexual as a pastor because they don't meet the qualifications, they are unrepentantly sinning, and they're teaching false doctrine and teaching a false gospel. Not only should they not be uh, pastors, they should be run out of the church and disciplined so that they would repent and come to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So, again, so this is not a battle of human rights. This is a battle of what has God said and the implications that this decision has towards the good news of the gospel reaching those people who are caught up in homosexual sin. Got it? Anyway, um, so, the, you know, I, I point these things out because, you know, I, I like the fact that uh, Terry, you know, she's wrestling with trying to understand how fundamentalists think. Although, you know, uh, anyway, uh, but um, really this comes down to what has God said? And our job as Christians is to proclaim the truth of God and to not bend to the culture and to basically say this is what God says and we can't say anything other. We don't get to change the message. He's God. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our walk through the book of Romans. We're up to Romans chapter 4, and then our sermon review today is um, uh, by Pastor Craig Groeschel of LifeChurch.tv. I think he's in Oklahoma City. And uh, the name of the sermon series is The Warrior, and the name of the particular sermon is The Hesitant Warrior. So we're going to be listening to, like I said, I've gotten like inundated by request to do a Craig Rochelle sermon review. And he, like I said, is one of the mucky mucks of the uh, pantheon of seeker-driven churchdom. So uh, we'll be listening into that sermon today. So stay tuned. Lots of, uh, lots of good stuff coming up ahead. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith or any other uh, previous editions, you can at uh, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avastar, it be too late to alter course, mateys. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men... Tell no tales. (laughs) Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, 
a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Number two, fighting for the faith. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter four today as we continue our study of the book of Romans. And then our sermon review today is called The Hesitant Warrior from Craig Rochelle's LifeChurch.tv. Craig is down there in Oklahoma City. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Romans. That's one of the things we do here is we work our way through different books in the Bible. Um, we've worked through Mark. We've worked through large sections of Exodus. We've worked through the book of Acts. And now we're look, taking a look at some of the theological epistles, uh, the book of Romans in particular, specifically because of the fact of its law-gospel uh, distinction between the two and uh, and how it's proclaimed salvation by grace through faith. And so... So far, Romans 1, we've gone into our uh, complete, uh, really, Romans 1, 2, and half of 3, plunges all of humanity into sin, basically says we're all sinful, none of us seeks God, we've all together become worthless, we're all leveled under sin, and then we've got this glorious uh, stuff in the middle of uh, Romans chapter 3, Proclaiming to us not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that's from God. It's not by, and the salvation that isn't by works, but a salvation that's completely by grace. Well, Paul continues that theme here in Romans chapter 4. He says, so, talking about the salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, Paul says, What shall we then say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If it is, in fact, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So what does the scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God, that is, uh, believed or trusted in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 that Paul is uh, quoting here. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Okay? Or his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is counted or credited to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. As quoted from Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Now, is this blessing then, the, uh, the forgiveness of sins, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And this is a relevant question, especially if you're a Jew in those days. <clears throat> now, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after Abraham had been circumcised? Well, it was not after. Instead, it was before he was circumcised. 
he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our, forf that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise itself is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God and in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's right, he didn't die for the godly. <laughs> no. He didn't die for the righteous. Christ died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have, been now, we have now been justified by his blood, or declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of and the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that is that of that the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's our reading from Romans uh, chapter 4 and 5 today. Again, fantastic stuff. Good and important stuff to keep in mind and to go over and meditate on and teach other people regarding salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Now, this does not mean that Christians do not perform good works. No, that's not what this doctrine teaches. It teaches that good works flow from that new nature that we have in Christ. But we're not saved by them, and we most certainly do them. Most certainly. All right, it's now time for our sermon review here at Fighting for the Faith, which means it's time to cue up the uh, sermon review music. From the good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Yesterday's was just terrible. Woo! Space Cadet sermon. Alright, today today we're going to be reviewing a sermon entitled The Hesitant Warrior from the much-copied Warrior Sermon Series developed by Craig Rochelle of LifeChurch.tv. As I've said already on a couple of occasions here on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, Craig Rochelle is um, is kind of a uh, one of the mucky mucks in the pantheon of seeker-driven uh, church planter guys that everyone wants to be like. He does a lot of conference speaking because he's one of the more successful guys, and everyone wants to be like him, and they end up buying a lot of his sermons anyways, or <laughs> completely ripping him off. Uh, who was that one pastor there in Georgia who told Craig Rochelle's childhood story as if it was his own? Oh, it was from Pine Ridge Church. I forget the guy's name. Anyway, yeah, I'm getting old. So today's sermon, I, 
I'm not exactly sure how it's going to turn out. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. Now, that being said, I'm going to kill the music here. Thank you. All right. I did get an email today uh, from Dustin. Now, I don't know where Dustin is from. However, he sent me an important email. Before we get into the sermon proper, I wanted to uh, uh, read the email. He says, hey, Chris, I was wondering if you could do a segment on how you review sermons or perhaps give me some pointers. I've uh, started a website where I review sermons preached from six churches in my smaller town. Yeah, I, I have nothing better to do. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. And compare and contrast and see how, uh, if law and gospels preached. There's a, there is the oneness Pentecostal church. They fail. In any case, what is the best way to do it? How long does it take? Do you listen to and take notes as you go? Or do you listen a few times and it would uh, any help would be appreciated? Okay, Dustin. I literally, in the course of a year, listen to roughly about a thousand sermons okay one of the things i'm doing is i'm doing post-production work and doing preparation for the program i'm reviewing different sermons as i go so um but what happened is is that long ago i i i started listening for particular things and started making mental notes rather than having to write them down i think that just comes from experience but the things i listen for law and gospel specifically um major things i want to i want to see um are they preaching the law lawfully Okay, now that means I'm working from a, um, a, a an idea that, that there is a such thing as unlawfully preaching the law. An unlawful use of the law is when you basically beat somebody up with the law and tell them that you better get your act together or God's going to smash you. Um, that's not exactly the right way to do it, and mo- and you know that there's a truth to that. However. Um, you have to bring the gospel to bear. So if they, if all they do is, 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 you know, basically say you can make your life easy by applying these five principles from the Bible, that's an unlawful use of the law. That's not true, and they're selling you something. Or they preach the law uh, without any gospel, and even if they use it properly, that's a problem. And so you want to listen for the correct distinction of law and gospel. And the other thing is, is I listen for what I can, what I call un, uh, unfounded assertions. Anybody can make any claim they want about God, but if it's not really taught in Scripture, it's an unfounded assertion. It's not backed by Scripture. That's actually a a form of false doctrine. And then the other thing I listen for is, how are they using God's Word? Are they um, are they twisting God's word? Are they ripping verses out of context? Uh, basically, taking you know one verse from here, another verse from there, and another verse from here, and then stringing them together in such a way that they're they're drawing incorrect conclusions about what God's word teaches by taking them out of context. You know, the silly example of that is you know the person who uh, wants to study who who needs a word from God, and so they pray earnestly, oh Lord, please speak to me. I'm going to open my Bible and randomly pick a passage and tell me what it is you want me to do with my life. And so that person, you know, they pray and then they flip open their Bible with their eyes closed and put their finger down on one of any page randomly. And it says, uh, Judas went and hung himself. And they go, I don't like that. And then they close their Bible and then they, you know, close their eyes and then flip it open and put their finger down. And it says, go thou and do likewise. You see, you can make the Bible say all kinds of things, but I can guarantee you, God would not tell you He wants you to go kill yourself. And so that's an you, you got to be careful when you're taking passages out of context. Now, that being the case, it it is still possible to draw correct conclusions from a verse. You just have to be careful when you do that. Um, you know, the, the systematic theologians do it all the time. They they draw correct conclusions and say this is what God's word says, and they're correct. Many times, pastors, though, for whatever reason, when they're taking passages and twisting them like that, then we've got a problem. 
Um, and the other thing is, is are they teaching from, uh, are they teaching using a, a translation, a good translation, or are they, you know, like Rick Warren, basically not only ripping uh, verses from context, are they instead taking ver- one verse out of context from the message paraphrase, another verse out of context from the NIV, another verse out of comp- uh, context from the Amplified, and another verse out of context from the New King James? When somebody's doing that, um, they're not interested in teaching what God's Word really says. They're interested, they've got something they're trying to teach you that's their own thinking, not God's. So those are the primary things I listen for. And then um, as far as what I bring to the radio, many times when I, the stuff I bring to the radio, you know, I, of the thousands, literally I've got about, I've got more than 5,000 uh, uh, sermons in my uh, iTunes library, uh, of, of the of the different ones that I have in there, many times I categorize them based upon particular uh, uh, types of sermons, and I'm looking for particular themes. You know, how are they handling long gospel? Is this a is this a manly feminist sermon? Is this a a word faith sermon? So a lot of times I'll you know I'll put them into categories that way, and then I'll bring them out and review them here on the program. Uh, depending on uh, really what seems to be the important thing that we uh, that we're harping on. Uh, here on the program on any on any weekly or daily basis. So that those are the general categories that I deal in, and uh, so there I just wanted to answer your question. Okay, so without any further ado, we're going to get into today's sermon, and this one's really more of a special request sermon because a lot of people have wanted me to do Craig Rochelle. So without any further ado, here is Craig Rochelle. Uh, we're, you're going to hear a little bit of music you know, leading into uh, the sermon. It's called The Hesitant Warrior. You know, I bet that just sounded really cool in theater seatings with a big gulp right next to it at church. Welcome today to all of our campuses and our network churches. Uh, we're in the second week of the series called The Warrior. I'm curious, do we have uh, any warriors anywhere today? Any warriors? Any warriors? We've got a few warriors. Uh, Is he referring to people in the military? Are there any samurai in the in the audience? Pretty weak. Uh, ladies, warrior princesses. Do we have any warrior princesses? Now- now, 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 gentlemen, I want you to see what just happened, okay? Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the warrior princesses, and there's some excitement. I'm talking to the warriors, and there's just this. You know, that, that's just totally, completely unacceptable. If you, if you do that again, I'm going to call you the warrior pansies. Okay, let, let's, let's, let's talk. Well, wait a second. Hold on a second there, Craig. Just got to come to the rescue here. Guys, real warriors, we're, we don't wear our emotion on our sleeves. You know, we're, So men are a little bit more stern and serious. Notice it was the girls who were all whooping and hollering and stuff like that. You're basically making the guys act like girls. Just, you know, my particular observation there. Start over again and see. Let me ask it again. Are there any warriors in the house? Any warriors in the house? Ooh, there you go. You see, there is nothing worse than a passive warrior. You meet a guy and he gives you a little handshake, a little dead fish handshake. I will grant this, though. Um, this sermon, uh, this is just manly. This is not like uh, cooking with uh, <laughs> Carrie Shook. Shake. 
you will answer to God for those little dead fish. There's nothing worse than a passive warrior, a, a hesitant man of God. And yet many of you, you're very aggressive and very powerful and faith-filled warriors in certain areas of your life, but there are other areas of your life that God is calling you to excel, and yet you've become passive. All right, first twinges of a, I'm detecting a very high law-based sermon. By the way, uh, D- Dustin, one of the things I look for in, in a law-based sermon is not only just law and gospel. Listen for the verbs in the sermon. Is it all about the things you do or and you've got to do? Or the, is it the gospel, all the things that God has done for you? Um, in this particular case, I'm already, yep, I'm starting to detect verbs that are kind of being pushed towards the things I've got to do. Now, that's perfectly fine if you're going to preach the law lawfully, teach a text that actually calls me to do specific things, and understand when you preach the law, you're condemning people of their sins and you need to give them the gospel too. So let's see if, if we get any gospel in this, but already we're going to head down the, the law road with this warrior uh, he basically said, you know, the dead fish illusion that he brought up there. You ever shake someone's hand and they, you know, they've got the limp hand thing going on? That That's the dead fish. And he said God was going to hold you accountable for that. So, uh, you know, I think he was being glib. But, uh, again, we're already starting to head down the law road. Let's see if we get any gospel. Law always has to be, listen to the verbs. It's all the things you've got to do. You've got to, you've got to. Every sermon has a... A problem that it's apparently solving, or at least addressing. And if the solution is you gotta, that ain't the gospel. And you become hesitant. The warrior in battle who hesitates is the most vulnerable warrior of all. The title of today's message is The Hesitant Warrior. We'll look at one in Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. All right, hang on a second here. Pulling up the computer eyes Bible. Judges, uh, let's see, J-U-D-G. Okay, Judges 6, 11 and 12. This is a little bit of scant Bible here. Um, let's see here, 11 and 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at... Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Eberizarite, uh, while he was, son, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord, the, the many people argue that's a theophany, that's a Jesus appearing, appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor." Okay. Well, I he'll, he'll read more of the story. I'm sure he will. And he just has us looking at those first two verses to start off with, I'm sure. Let's let verse 11 set the context. Here's what Scripture says. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, let's just bring some context to this. Gideon was a warrior, but he wasn't acting like a warrior. You see, the Midianites were an evil group of people who were coming and taking advantage of the Israelites. They would scare them, hurt them, steal their food. And so Gideon, the warrior, became hesitant. Ooh, I don't know if that's a valid uh, conclusion from that. Um, By the way... um, 
if yeah, he's a warrior, but warriors don't generally are not cowboys. They 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 generally fight together as soldiers in an army, and so it would be completely reasonable for him to uh, uh, be you know as a farmer. He's a farmer and a warrior to uh, understand that uh, it's just not smart to flash your uh, your your wheat out in front of the Midianites, especially if they've got an army and you're just a single dude. Hesitant warrior. Not from what I've seen so far, Craig. Well, let's see if you can back it up a little better. He was passive, and he looked at his people, and he thought, we don't have what it takes to defeat these bad guys. So he was hiding in the middle of a cave or in a wine press, kind of guarding what he had, not protecting his people. In fact, he just surrendered to the idea that we're always going to be under the Midianites. He- uh, was Gideon the king? Was it his job? Personally, just you know, I'm just asking the question. He became passive. God spoke to him through an angel of the Lord in verse 12 that says this When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you. Now, what did he call Gideon? He called him a what? Say it aloud. He called him a. Let's say it again, warriors. What, what did he call Gideon? Gideon didn't look like it, but the Lord said, said You're what? He said, You are a mighty warrior. You see, When God looks at a man, he doesn't just see the man as he is, but God sees him as he could become. Uh, Okay, um, maybe the better way of putting that would be uh, when God sees a man, he sees him for what he's going to create him to be. God calls the things that are not as though they are. Jesus has known us since the foundations of the earth. Um... Um, okay, yeah, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit queasy at the moment here, just feeling like we're, we're going to be heading down the law, law road, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not exactly thrilled with his uh, interpretation of this passage so far. A man will often say, well, you know, here I am in life, this is, this is all I'm going to ever do. But God doesn't look at you and see what you do, but instead he often sees what you can do. He doesn't see you just as you are, but as you could become. Uh, Jesus and Peter had a conversation like this. If there was ever a guy who was on again, off again, it was Peter. He, He would nail something and get it right, and then 30 seconds later, he would totally blow it. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Your name is no longer going to be Simon Peter. From this moment forward, I'm going to call you The Rock. Now, was Peter a rock? No. But Jesus saw something in him that others and Peter... Okay, we've got to be real careful here. here here's, you got to understand this. By nature, we are all sinners. Okay, God doesn't look at us and go, you know, I see a lot of potential there. Uh, this, you know, we just need to get this guy making some better decisions. No. God sees us as sinners, and what does he do? He raises us from the dead, he redeems us, he sanctifies us, he washes us, he buries us in Christ, he raises us in Christ. He causes us to become what he wants us to be. God's really in the driver's seat, we're not. I'm a little bit nervous about what uh, Craig's doing here. Peter did not yet even see in himself. And years later, Peter grew into the name that Jesus called him because Jesus saw something in him that he didn't yet see in himself. Now, I'm going to point something out here. 
this is uh, this is what I call an unfounded assertion. There is no passage of scripture that says this. There is no passage of scripture that teaches this that Jesus saw something in Peter that he didn't see in himself. No, this is not taught anywhere. So this falls into the category of an ungrounded assertion. That's not even a valid implication of the passages that he's referencing at this point. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Some people may look at you today and say, but you don't look like a warrior in this area of your life. And God would say, I'm not just looking at what others see, but I'm looking at what I put inside of you. Gentlemen, you have the heart of a warrior. Uh, so uh, this is an allegorical interpretation now of Gideon. Apparently all you men out there, um, and me included, we're now all, we're all warriors. That, see, God, when he was saying that to, uh, when the angel of the Lord was speaking that to Gideon, he was actually speaking that to you. Yeah, but what if I just want to be an accountant like uh, Michael Ritzman? Exodus says this, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. You're created in the image of God. And part of the characteristics that God would give you, gentlemen, is the heart of a warrior. What do we know about a warrior? We learned last week about Jesus. Oh, wow. That's a little slippery there. Um, so let me see. I was made in the image of God. It describes God as a warrior. Therefore, ipso facto, all of us men were warriors. Well, then, wouldn't since all of us, male and female, are created in the image of God, doesn't that mean women are warriors too? Is this a valid implication? Yeah, man. A little bit of yeah, fast and loose logic, I think. The greatest warrior of all time, and we discovered that every warrior has a cause to fight for. Gentlemen, there's something in you that desires to fight for something that is righteous, to fight for that which is true, to stand up and fight for those who are innocent, to defend the honor of someone who's in need. And every warrior has this cause to fight for. What was Gideon's? What was becoming very obvious? You are to save Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. This is your cause. The challenge is because, gentlemen, we have this divine desire to fight. If we're not fighting for the right cause, we'll end up fighting for the wrong cause. And that's when we get stupid written all over us. We end up rebelling against authority without the right cause to fight for. We end up fighting the wrong battle. And instead of being the spiritual warrior, we become a dangerous warrior. Every warrior... Just got to ask the question now. Okay, here's the deal. I mean, if, if there's anybody that could make some kind of a claim as to, quote, being a warrior, fighting for a cause of truth and stuff, it would be me. I You know, I do fighting for the faith every day, but... I don't consider myself a warrior. Um, maybe I'm just not embracing my inner warrior. I just, I don't know. Um, here's, uh, uh, just again, listening to this, uh, this seems to be taking the focus off of Christ. More, I think more than seems to. This is, the sermon is taking my focus off of Christ and somehow putting it onto me. Hey, look, I'm a... Yeah, I just need to embrace that warrior thing that God put inside of me. Me, warrior. Me, warrior. Me. Wait a second. Isn't Jesus the one who conquered sin, death, and the devil? Isn't Jesus the warrior? Uh, I, was, I wasn't the guy who was the warrior. I was the guy who was the, the, the slave who was set free by the warrior. Jesus. 
you see what I'm saying? This is kind of narcissistic. Has a cause to fight for. God will see something in you that you don't yet even see in yourself. Now, here's the problem, though. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. And if you're like most men, including me... And maybe the reason I don't see myself as a warrior is because I'm an overweight nerd. Maybe, maybe that's just it. I just... Uh. Hey, you don't want to admit this. But in almost every case, it's true. Foundational thought for the day is this. Every warrior, at least occasionally, fears failure. <laughs> No, say it isn't so. Craig, you've got to be kidding me. That can't possibly be true. I, uh, that's just horrible. I mean, imagine the pain and the suffering. Yes, every warrior faces fear. Uh, can you point me to a passage, Craig, where Jesus talked about how warriors have to face fear? Just, you know... Every warrior, even the most courageous, bold-looking warrior at all, before battle or in the middle of the battle, starts to wonder, wait a minute, do I still have what it takes? Sometimes even the most... Do I still have what it... Do I? This is focusing on me, 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 me. Oh, man. Can you tell me about what Jesus, the, the real warrior, done, did, you know confident appearing men the ones you might say well they're cocky they're the ones who are most insecure they're often the ones who are putting up this false front because deep down they're wondering do i really have what it takes uh, people who don't know me well they may say well craig you appear really confident as as a spiritual leader well the truth of the matter is i always fear failure uh, as a church we're launching something this week that we're going to partner with churches around the world and and we're we're unveiling this and i'm scared to death because it's so big I don't want to fail. Every, every By the way, um, notice that when uh, God came to Gideon and the angel of the Lord, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I mean, isn't that kind of like the whole game changer there, that God is the one? Yeah, never mind. You know, this is all about you. Every weekend, very true, every weekend before I teach, every weekend I am incredibly nervous, incredibly nervous because... I, I, I don't want to fail. Every warrior fears failure. Look, look at Gideon. God says, hey, I want you to go deliver my people. Verse 15, uh, he reveals him, his insecurities. He says, but Lord, Gideon asks, how can I save Israel? My clan, we're the what? Say it aloud. We're the, we're, we're the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the what? I, I'm the least in my family. Why, why is it that so many men are so afraid of failure? To us... Failure is so personal. We tend to internalize it as men. Uh, so this is a story about the fear of failure. Maybe Gideon was just being practical here. What? You've got the wrong person. Remember, he's hiding from the Midianites when when the angel of the Lord shows up. Remember? I mean, this is not the t normal type of person that you would pick. It doesn't sound like Gideon was, you know, a six foot four, two hundred and seventy pound linebacker. Uh, it doesn't sound like he, it sounds like he was pretty much a nerdy farmer. I mean, this is just a practical response, I think. But maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. We typically don't say, "Well, I failed at something external." If we fail at something external, we tend to take it internally, and we think, "Well." I am a failure. You see, it feels 
very final to us. Failure, it feels, it's not so, but it feels very absolute. I, I, I can't lose at something. If I, if I get second place, Amy's like, oh, congratulations, you got second place. Like, you don't understand. I lost. Second might as well be last. As a warrior, if I can't win, I don't want to fight. Most guys are like that. If we can't come out on top, we don't want to play. And so that's why if a man struggles in his career, he doesn't just say, well, I'm having a tough time finding out what I want to do. What he thinks is, I'm a failure. If his family is struggling, he doesn't go back and go, oh, yeah, this is just like a bad quarter in my family. What he says is, I'm a failure as a dad. He internalizes it because we, we, are, we believe, wrongly so, but we believe that our worth is based on our accomplishments. If we're accomplishing, we feel good about ourselves. But if we don't, we feel incredibly, incredibly insecure. We have bad thoughts about ourselves because every one of us, we fear failure. It's so, so deeply entwined in our hearts, which leads to this thought, if you're taking notes. And here's where it gets really, really important. This is for those of you who are spiritual warriors. This is for the men of God. This is for those who who are spirit-filled warriors of God. Write this down. When, When these warriors, when their fear of failure exceeds their faith in God, this is when they become hesitant. When a warrior's internal fear of failure exceeds his faith in God, that's when he becomes hesitant. And the hesitant warrior is always vulnerable. Give you an example. I mean, okay. Okay, yeah. Well, what does this have to do with what Christ did for me? Or, in fact, what does this have to do with God's rescuing of the Israelites from the Midianites? Because isn't that what God was the one doing? He was the one doing the rescuing, and the instrument he chose was one that we wouldn't have chosen? I mean, you can actually preach Christ from this text rather nicely because you, you, this this harkens us to it's a picture of 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 Christ's incarnation. In Scripture, it says that you know he, he wasn't lovely or handsome that we would that you know that he would that we would pick him or that's Roseboro's twisted paraphrase there. But you, you get what I'm saying here. Uh, God, our God is the one who was nursing at the uh, at the breast of a, a lowly handmaiden from Nazareth in a in a manger. Our God was the one who was naked, dead, and bleeding on a cross, hung between two criminals. Here we've got God deciding He's going to save Israel from Midian, and He's going to do it through a lowly and despised, nerdy little guy who is from the lowest clan of the clans of the lowest... You see what I'm saying here? I mean, there's some real gospel in there, and God's the one doing the rescuing. Um, He's just chosen a very interesting instrument for it. In the the New Testament, one time Peter was in a boat with 11 other disciples, and he saw Jesus walking up, and, and Jesus was on water, and Peter's like, dude, that's cool. That's cool. Can I do that? Jesus, can I come out to you? And Jesus basically said... That, that's how you read that passage? Uh, so when the uh, disciples saw Jesus walking by, they thought they saw a ghost, and, Je- and, they, and Jesus said, don't fear, it's me. And Je- Peter said, I, Lord, let me come out to you. He was saying, that's cool. You want to try? Try. And so Peter jumps out of the boat, 
and the guy is walking on water. Amazing. Looking at Jesus, he's on water. Then what happened? He looked away. And when he looked away, Scripture says he saw the wind and the waves. And when he took his eye off Jesus and he looked away, that's when he started to sink. Because his fear of failure exceeded his faith in Jesus. His fear of failure. Fear of failure. That is the first time I've ever heard any pastor anywhere preaching on that text say that Peter had a fear of failure. I think he was just afraid, afraid, afraid. I mean, look at all the waves and the wind and the, ah, I'm going to die. Fear of failure? <sighs> and that's when he started to sink. Gentlemen, may I say to some of you very respectfully that uh, in some area of your life, you've taken your eye off Christ. And you're looking... <laughs> you, you think? Oh, man. Men, may I tell you very respectfully that in some area of your life, I don't know what that it could... It could be your finances. It could be your marriage. It could be your parenting. It could be your career. You've taken your eyes off Christ. Really? We all sin by nature, dude. <sighs> There isn't an area of my life that isn't impacted by my sin. That's kind of a weird way of compartmentalizing sin. That's okay. I'm a warrior in this compartment of my life. But over here, I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. And I have a fear of failure. <sighs> Looking at your own abilities and you're saying, I may not have what it takes. And the truth is, you, 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 without him, you don't. And so your insecurities and your fear of failure is exceeding your faith in Christ. And you become hesitant. And that's why in some area of your life, perhaps, you're sinking. I don't know how it plays out. I know... Uh, oh, man. Eh, could it possibly be sin, dude? Um, Craig, seriously. I mean, don't you think you're kind of treating the whole sin thing rather lightly and glibly? I, I mean, are you afraid to call it what it is? I know a lot of you, uh, I know a lot of great young guys that want to be married one day, but, but you're hesitant. You, you want to be married, but you don't ask anybody out because you're scared to death she's going to reject you. You've become hesitant, and your fear of failure is blocking your progress. I know a lot of guys, that some of you, you're dating someone. This is a pep talk for those guys who were afraid to ask a girl out. <sighs> oh, man. I did not know that this was the problem that Christ died for on the cross. I just did not know that. Some of the most awesome women around, but you can't commit. Why? You're hesitant. You saw someone else divorce and you're wondering, do I have what it takes? And so, and, and so you, you just hesitate, 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 hesitate. You're a hesitant, passive warrior. Is this a sin? Uh, I'm serious. Do they need to repent of this? I know a lot of guys who are they're, they're Christian men. They, they love Jesus, but your family has almost no evidence of being spiritual at all. I mean, we go to church, we'll let someone else do it, but there, there's no evidence of Christ during the week. And so you think, I'd like to lead spiritually. I really, really would. But if I try, I may not be very good at it. And then she may see that she really knows more than I do, and I can't afford a false start. So you, you hesitate. 
and your fear of failure exceeds your faith in God, and you don't draw the sword of the Spirit. I, I know a lot of guys that would... Um, there's a, God has given you a vision for a business, and, and deep down you would love to try. God has given you a vision for a business. Wow. Is this like a Patricia King kind of experience? They had a dream or a special 30-day visitation of the Almighty himself? Was their face glowing when they received this uh, vision for a business? I did not. I, I, is, there, is there some kind of a new doctrine of Pentecostal business planting? But you hesitate because you think if I try and it doesn't work out, well, then I'm going to be a failure. There's a ministry I need to be involved in in the church. I'd like to do this, but, but what if I don't know enough? What if I'm not good enough? So instead of doing what you were created to do, fighting for the divine cause, so many godly men, they hesitate. And instead of leading courageously, they become passive, hesitant warriors. All right. Oh man, yeah, that that terrible blight on humanity, the hesitant warrior. I imagine what the world would be like if it weren't for them. Um, let's change gears, ladies. Can we talk for a minute? Any princess warriors in the house? Princess warriors, okay. okay. But let me let me just talk to you because you have to hear this. Your role in your warrior's life is bigger than you could ever imagine. It is so big. Because in so many ways, he is becoming what you think about him. In so many ways, he is becoming what you think about him. You show me a, a, a courageous, godly man of God, and more times than not, there is a, a, a praying, encouraging wife nearby. You show me someone who's grown passive and hesitant, and almost every time, you'll see a woman who said, you're not any good at this. You're not dependable. You're not faithful. I can't count on you. You're never going to mount anything. You always blow it. Because in so many ways, lady, he, he is becoming what you see of him. I'll explain it to you this way. Um, if, if I'm good at what I do, one of the reasons is because my wife, Amy, she knows me far better than any of you. And if she believes in me and she knows me better than you do, I think to myself, I must, I must have what it takes. Now, this sermon is clearly falling under the category of good advice, maybe. I, I don't know if it's good or not. I mean, is he qualified to be giving uh, advice to warriors? Um, but it's not falling under the category of gospel good news. It isn't even really biblical law either. I mean, it's okay. But if the woman who knows me better than anyone else doesn't believe in me, then I think to myself, I must not have what it takes, and I become hesitant. I'll explain it to you like this. Ladies, you can tell me if this is true. Most women would say it is. What you need to know from your man is, does he, does he love you? Does he cherish you? Does he value you today? See, like yesterday, I was a man. I was a dude. I was the guy. I mean, I was... I, I racked up points. I unloaded the dishwasher. I did non-sexual touching. Some of you guys don't know what that is. I'll tell you later on. I, uh, I, I encouraged Amy. I helped with the kids' bath. I was, I was all over it. I got all these points yesterday. The problem is with women, all those points men accumulate, they evaporate at midnight. 
is the funkiest thing. This they go away. I mean, and then it starts over. And a guy's thinking, like, but wasn't I good yesterday? He's like, I don't care about yesterday. I want to know, do you love me today? A guy said, well, I told you three weeks ago I love you, and it hasn't changed. And to a guy, that still makes sense. But she wants to know, do you love me today? Women, is that pretty much accurate? Okay, pretty accurate. Here's what a guy wants to know. He doesn't want to know, do you cherish me today? He's a warrior. Okay? What he wants to know is this. He wants to know, do you still believe in him? He wants to know, do you respect him? He wants to know, do you admire him? Do you believe in him? Now, some of you, sadly, will say, well, really, I don't. Well, let me say this. You did at one time or you wouldn't have married him. Why do you not admire him today? Maybe you've been speaking the life out of him for so many years. Do you admire me? Do do you respect me? Do you honor me? Do you believe in me today? Because when... Okay, notice again, the whole focus, whole focus, me, 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 the things I've got to do, do, do. Look, are you, are you, you terrible wife out there, you sucking the life out of your warrior? Oh, boy. And when, 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 when my wife does, man, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll... I mean, granted, there are probably some women who've been doing that, who are hearing this sermon. Um it's debatable as to whether or not this is a real sin it, it, it well actually it does it is a sin but you have to get it into the right category to see it for what it is um it's not that it's not the mutual submission to one another that you know that the the scriptures call husbands and wives to um but again where's jesus um you got any good news for me craig i mean Again, you're kind of giving some marital advice here. Do you have a, a degree in marital counseling? Um, and if you do, then um, and why aren't you doing that rather than uh, you know than trying to play a a marriage therapist on on, on your t- lifechurch.tv? I uh. yeah, I'll, 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 I think I'm better than I am. I'm like, oh, she believes in you. Watch this. Oh, I'm not that good, but she believes it. Oh, you know. Because it does something inside a man when his woman believes in him. She, she trusts him. Speak life, encouragement. On another note, a lot of princess warriors, they complain and whine all the time about, my, my husband's not the spiritual leader, so I have to wear the spiritual pants in the family. And I'd say to you, okay, since you're already doing it, he probably is not going to do it because you're doing it. Okay? And here's what happens is, is women, they have this idea of what a spiritual leader looks like. And, and most ladies I talk to, it looks like a, you know, an hour-long Bible study and long prayer meetings. And I just need to say to you, ladies, that's probably in many cases not going to happen. Because your expectations of him is not what he's wired to deliver. And so when you have those expectations, and when he tries to do something, and you say, that's not right, what he says to himself is, I can't win this game, so I don't want to play. And the very thing you desire the most... He won't do because he could never live up to your expectations. So, ladies, when he does... We are definitely off the biblical trail here. Uh, In this uh, potentially male-type sermon that had some real testosterone potential here has now slipped off into relationship advice and has become decidedly girly. Man. Anything remotely spiritual. Don't criticize it. Reward it. He may just pray for the first time over meal. God is great. God is good. Thank you for this food. You know, and then just look at him and go, that was great. He'd be like, really? He'd be like, that turns me on when you pray that way. He's like, let's have a prayer meeting right now. You know, <laughs> man. You, you just encourage him when he leads spiritually 
And then ladies, listen to this. When you let him become the man that God created him to be, he will exceed your greatest expectations of whatever you hoped that he could be. When you let him become the man that God created him. Will you let those women have their tithe money back if, uh, if that doesn't happen? To be. Deep down, we're insecure. Every warrior fears failure. Uh, write this down. Gentlemen, I want, you to, I want you to internalize this. I want you to embrace this and internalize it. Here's your main thought. The warrior, gentlemen, the warrior empowered by God, the warrior you, you have what it takes. God, You have what it takes. Where, where's the doctrine of sin? Where, I have what it takes. I'm a wretched sinner. How could I possibly have what it takes? Fallen, oh man. Ugh. God has given you what it takes to do what he would call you to do. Gideon's freaked out. God speaks to him. Verse. Okay, now this is, that's a decent point. God gives you the ability to do what it is he calls you to do. Granted. However, God has not called me or you to save Israel from the Midianites. I don't think they're much of a scourge anymore. I just, just a feeling I have. Verse 14, and says this, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the what? Help me out. He said, Go in the what? He said, Go in the... Say it again. He said, Go in the strength you have, God says to him, and save Israel out of Midian's hands. God says, Am I not sending you? Same message to you, gentlemen. Is God sending you? Is he speaking? Sending me to do what? <sighs> Go conquer my uh, my competition at work? <laughs> Allegorical interpretation again. Oh, boy. Speaking to you, is he leading you? Is he stirring you? If he is, draw your sword and go, baby, go. You've got what it takes. Don't listen to every other voice when you take your eyes off him, the voice that say, but you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not sharp enough, you're not... I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn people like me. Craig, you're going to Stuart Smalley doctrine now? Fast enough, you're not a good enough leader. He said, no, shut up, I'm not listening to those, those thoughts of doubt, I'm listening to what he says about me, and he just told me to go in the strength that I have. Gentlemen, you have what it takes. If he calls you, believe it. Embrace it. Step in. If he calls you, calls me to do what? Conquer the world? Become president of the United States? Slay a dragon? What are you talking about? Into it. You have the intellect. You have the desire. You have the willpower. You have the self-discipline. You have the strength. You have... You know, I've heard this speech before. You know where I've heard this? Um, oh, I remember. I heard it at a business uh, motivation thing. Some business coach was waxing eloquent about these particular affirmations. <sighs> Do I need a dead, crucified, and risen Savior for this? You have the courage. You have the stamina. You have the resources and get you, 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 you. It's, it's all about you. This ain't about Christ. Guess what, guys? Wherever you don't, wherever you are weak, oh, that's the beauty. Huh. That's when his strength is made perfect in your weakness. If he calls you, you step out. Why do I feel like that passage was taken out of context and just thrown in there? Just, you know, just, I feel it. I, I... I don't know. 
you draw the sword and you say, by his power, we will win. Don't hesitate. Nothing worse than a hesitant, passive warrior when God calls you. You go. You oh, I know. that. Yeah, that, what a terrible scourge. I mean, that's what our big problem is in humanity. We got a bunch of hesitant warriors out there. Oh, man, if we would only get a bunch of non-hesitant warriors, the whole world would just be a... It would be like Garden of Eden on Earth, I'm telling you. Even before Jesus comes back. You go, you go, baby, you go. And the strength that you have, God is going to give you everything you need to do what he calls you to do. Now, sometimes the guys look and go, Oh, the war is too big. How can I ever win this? What war are you talking about? It's, I'm, I am just so lost. This is what I don't, what war? This war. Quit looking at the big war. Look at the battle that is in front of you, gentlemen. You have what it takes to win the battle in front of you. Don't be overwhelmed by the war. Understand God has given you what it takes to win the battle. You're... What war, what battle are you talking about? I, I, I don't see this in the, the writings of the apostles. Either Luke, Mark, John, Peter, Paul, Jude... I don't see uh, none of them. What are you talking about? And why are you talking about me all the time? Addicted to something. I can never overcome it. When that thing comes in front of you, you push it away today. You just won that battle. You, you, you need to lose 40 pounds. And may I say respectfully, some of you, for the sake of your family, get in better shape. You say, I can never lose 40 pounds. I can never... Oh, yeah, that's just... Yeah, I've, I've waged that battle and lost many times. So, I... Do, do I need a crucified, risen Savior for that? Um, yeah. Never do that. We'll win the battle. Push the Twinkie away. Walk away from the free donuts at church. You know, whatever it is, win the battle Today, win the battle. You may have a, there may be a war for the purity of your mind because for years and years, you've programmed your mind on lustful, sinful images. And you think, could I ever be pure right here? Well, well if, why don't you offer them the pure righteousness of Christ, which is offered to us by the gospel? Can I ever be pure? Well, let's see. Uh, by your own self-righteousness? No. What are you going to do? Win the battle? Some hot chick walks by and you're normally going to go, Oh, praise God for her. You're not going to do that. What you're going to do instead is you're going to look away and you're going to win that battle. And tonight when your girlfriend wants to do what you've been doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, you're going to say, You know what? I love you enough and I love Jesus enough to tell you, Good night. It's time to go home. This date's over. Because you're going to win that battle. If your family doesn't resemble anything that's Christian, you call yourself a Christian, but there's no evidence of Christ? It, by the way, is he talking, uh, literally, is this just a pep talk, or is he admonishing, admonishing Christians to be what they are in Christ? Set free from sin, set free from, you know, do you, you understand what I'm saying? It, or is this just pure works righteousness pep talk try harder do better win that battle you can do it go fight win or is it in light of god's mercies in light of the gospel and everything that christ has done for us on the cross offer yourselves as a living sacrifice is that what we're hearing or we're hearing 
the you just better get together. You gotta drop and give me twenty. Come on, you warrior. You don't be hesitant, and you gotta. Uh, hmm. This is not the law preached lawfully at all. And in fact, it's rather exasperating. You're gonna say to your wife tonight, "We're gonna pray," and your prayer may just be, "God, help us to be more Christian," and that may be it. You just want a battle. You, you may say, "You know what? We're going to a life group this week." And gentlemen, you get on the phone, you make the phone call. You're going to a what? A life group? Uh, I, I, that's apparently what they call their small group. They call them life groups. Yeah, we're not going to have a Bible study. We're going to go to a life group. What do we do in your life group? Uh, oh, we study tips and tricks and principles for having a better life. <sighs> You go to the website, you set it up, you say this is the day, you lead, and you just won a battle. Your kid's going the wrong way, and you're, you're, you, you haven't stepped in. And you're just kind of sitting back, watching, as your 14-year-old daughter's making bad decisions. You be the man, you step in, and you say, Sweetheart, I love you too much to let you go this way. You win the battle. You win the battle. Gentlemen, you have what it takes look at what scripture says don't believe me look at what scripture says. i can't wait to hear what we got what we're going to hear from the bible here <sighs> i wonder if it's going to be taken out of context you know maybe i could flip a coin not sure let's see second peter one three god's div hold on a second here second peter one three all right let's see what you do with it craig divine power has given you how much? Help me out. God's divine power has given us what? It's given us how much has it given us? Say it again. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. God's power has given you everything you need to do to accomplish what God puts before you. Believe it. Go okay, hang on a second here. Man, talking about missing the forest because of the tree. Hang on, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1. All right, okay. Oh, 2 Peter, sorry. <laughs> I hate when I do that. I'm looking at the verse going, hey, it doesn't say that. Hang on a second here. 1 Peter. Okay, three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Now, let's t pay close attention to the sanctification uh, Im uh, imperatives that are brought about as a result of the gospel indicatives. The uh, Listen carefully. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith, that's a trust, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what do we hear there, right there at the very opening of First Peter, Second Peter? The gospel. Okay, now listen. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so what have we got here in verse 2? Again, the gospel. <laughs> okay. Now, listen again, verse 3. His, that's Christ's divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this reason, make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, notice what's going on here. Peter is admonishing us into these good qualities, as he puts them, as a result of, of the gospel and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins and that forgiveness. What did Craig miss when he just ripped verse 3 out of its context? He missed the gospel. The fact that sanctification flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins because we are new creations in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. <sighs> I'm hearing a lot of you got us, but I'm not hearing a lot of what Christ has done. Go in the strength you have. And some of you, you're still sitting back going, but uh, 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 I, I, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Gideon? He had 32,000 men. That's not enough. God, that's not enough. Yeah, you know what? I just while I was listening to this, did a little more research here. Just yeah, Again, context, context, context. Remember, this is supposedly the... The uh, Gideon passage here, he started at verse, like, what, 11 or 12? He kind of missed some important points here. Um, let me go to Judges chapter 6 and read that in context so we get a better feel for what's going on with this Gideon story. Verse 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So God handed them over to the Midianites because they, they had basically abandoned the Lord. So the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock, their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels would not be uh, counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. How did they get into that problem in the first place? Uh, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They didn't trust in him. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of from uh, up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land and I said to you 
I am the Lord your God. You shall fear the, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What did they do? They committed idolatry and they got ensnared by the gods of the Amorites. So now we're up to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his sons Gideon, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. That's kind of the important part there. O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Go in this might. Go in this might. Hmm. It sounds like he's going in the might of the Lord that God has given him. Not in his own might, but in the might that God had given him. Go in this might of yours, which I, yeah, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is that you, that is that you speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my president and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So, okay. Who's the one doing the rescuing again here? Oh, God is. And uh, who was the one that put them under the under the uh, oppression of the Midianites? Oh, it was God. Why? Because they abandoned God and worshipped the idols of the Amorites. All of that seems to be mysteriously missing from this particular sermon. What did God do? God took a bunch of them away. Then he only had ten thousand men. Oh, it's surely not enough. They want God. Yeah, the story of Midian. They, they, you know, so God basically to make sure that Israel doesn't get the credit or take the credit themselves, He reduces the army down to like three hundred of the most feral of the uh, men of Israel. God do took it down to three hundred men. Totally impossible, God. It'll never, ever, 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 ever work. It's not enough. God said, "No, that's exactly enough." And that's maybe where some of you are right now. You may feel like you're going backwards and God's going to say, you know what, I'm going to take you down so low that all you've got left is me. And I'm enough. I'm, I'm all you need. Let me explain it this way. Um, write this down. Most warriors' greatest fear, what is it? Well, most, most warriors' greatest fear is what? Failure. But the problem is this fear, it leads to something far worse. And that's the warrior's greatest pain. What's the warrior's greatest pain? That's regret. The warrior's greatest pain is regret. Some of you, you're going to wake up one day and your greatest fear is going to lead to something much worse and that's your greatest pain. And you're going to look back and go, how did I miss it? How did I blow it? You know, isn't this the theme of a bunch of movies? You know, I've seen this played out on on movie theater screens in in multiple different uh, movies. That fear of, uh, that that pain of regret for not, uh, again, do I need a uh, crucified and risen Lord here? I mean, 
Don't you understand? I mean, this is just a perfect example of how you know, all of us, by nature, are under the control of Satan and sin, and God sends Christ to rescue us, to set us free from bondage. Yeah. So big. It was right there in front of me, and I was too big of a wuss to even try. My fear of failure exceeded my faith in God, and I became hesitant. And, and, and you're, you're going to hurt for years because you didn't give it a shot, whatever it is. Um, my oldest son, Sam, uh, when he was a little kid, I put him on a, a scooter. It was a scooter for, it's one of those scooters for like 10-year-olds. You ride it like this. Okay? He was two. Amy said, don't do it, I'll get hurt. I said, he's, he's my kid. He can scoot. I put him on this deal. He rode down this big hill on the scooter over and over and over again until the last run he got scared and he stepped off and he snapped his femur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loser me, Craig. And, and he had to have surgery, full body cast. It was a nightmare. Six weeks. He had to learn to walk again. And it changed him. The doctor said, oh, he won't remember it. Oh, dude, the dude remembered it. I mean, he, he, like, he'd been in a chair. Like, i got to be careful not to break my leg getting out of the chair. It totally changed him. Just a heartbreaking little deal. Well, I kept the scooter because I knew he'd need to ride it again. Amy hated me for that. She's like, you've got to get rid of the scooter. The scooter's from the devil. No one in our family will ever ride a scooter again. Our great-grandkids won't ride a scooter. My kids were afraid of the scooter. They'd walk by the scooter in their garage like, ah, it's going to break my leg. You know, it's just like... They were scared, and I kept it. I said, Amy, he'll need to ride it again one day. And she was so mad, so mad at me. No, he won't. Don't let him do it. You know, and, and I say, Sammy, are you ready to ride the scooter? No, and he'd cry, and he was so afraid. Sammy, are you ready? Tiger, you ready to ride? And oh, I finally stopped asking. Several years went by. He was older, had a missing tooth one day, and he came up to me and said, Daddy, I'm wetty. Uh, I'd forgotten him. I said, well, what, are, what are you ready for? And his, his tears kind of welled up. He said, Daddy, what did I do cooter? <laughs> I said, all right, buddy. And so I tried to sneak out without Amy finding out. Well, Anna went in, Mommy, Daddy's getting out of the scooter. Amy came running out. She goes, Craig, you need to understand. I will never, ever divorce you, but I will murder you. Okay? <laughs> and she was mad. I said, Go inside the house. This is something, if you can't watch it, this is something he needs to do. And Sam got on the top of the hill, and he stood there, and he started crying. He started shaking. And I said, buddy, you don't have to do this today. And he looked at me and said, no, daddy, I have to do this. And I said, I understand. And this little boy, he got on this thing, and he rode down, tears streaming down his face. When he got down the bottom of the hill, he took the scooter and threw it on the ground, <laughs> hands up in the air, high-fiving, chest button. But popping, we're burping, noogies. I mean, we're just, we're cheering. We got on the phone, called Papa, Sam rode the scooter, a granddaddy Sam, and we're telling everybody. And he's like, I conquered the monster, I rode the scooter. And Amy just looked on, going, huh? Huh? You see, that was a ride he had to take. And some people may not understand that, but if you're a warrior, you understand it. Because there's, there's something that's holding you back right now, and if you don't take that ride, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. There's a ride you have to take. 
It's time to face your fear. Gentlemen, God has created you with the heart of a warrior. There's a cause for you to fight for. When you, when, when, when you hesitate, you become vulnerable. Understand this. God has given you everything you need to do to accomplish what he put before you. You have what it takes. Go in the strength you have, gentlemen, and act like the spiritual warrior that God created you to be. All of our campuses, let's pray together. Father, thank you. Okay, so there's our Craig Groeschel, uh sermon. We didn't even get a gospel nugget on nothing about Jesus. The whole sermon lended itself to that, especially considering the text there. I mean, the obvious, you can dig out the gospel out of that text and it pointed right back to Christ and what he's done for us. Oh, sad, sad. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go uh, do some chest bumping later um, and, you know, butt popping or whatever. What did he, is that what? Uh, uh, the discouraging, disappointing. It was all about me, all the things I've got to do and... And I don't even think he correctly handled that text there from Judges, go in the strength you have. I think that that's referring to the strength that God had given them, him, because the text itself, yeah, I'll do a little bit of work on this, come back to it maybe next week. All right. Folks, the good news of the gospel is that, listen, you and I, we are in, in a very similar way to the oppression and the slavery that the mid, that uh, Israel experienced under the Midianites because they had rejected God. We all, by nature, are sinful and have rejected God and worshipped our own idols, our own concoctions that what we think is spiritual or what is true. And as a result of it, God has placed us literally under the control of sin, death, and the devil. And we are, by nature, children of, of, of wrath. And in a very similar way to what we see happening in this, in the, the liberation of Israel under Midian, them calling out to the Lord and God showing up, literally showing up to rescue them. God has showed up to rescue us, all of sinful humanity, in Jesus Christ. And he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he conquered the devil through his death and resurrection, through his vicarious death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection for the justi- for your justification. The good news of the gospel is, is that you no longer have to live under the bondage and slavery to sin, death, and the devil. N- not at all. In fact, Christ has rescued that you from that through what he has done for you on the cross. Therefore, repent and receive from him the forgiveness of sins and be set free in Christ from all of this because he is your great God and Savior. He is the warrior who wars and has defeated our foes for us and has liberated us and set us free. No better good news than that. Uh, It's tragic that uh, Craig missed all of that. All right, well, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Would you partner with us and help us to continue to bring this program not only to you, but to bring it to other people? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
Well, if you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. We'll catch you next week.